Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Mariana Matsukato, a professor of the economics of innovation and public value at University College London. She's here today with her book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. Then on Tech Nation Health, Tim Shannon from Canaan Partners discusses some terms with potential in the future of medical technology, protein degradation, and synthetic lethality. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reviews the latest FDA approvals in the use of AI. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Remember Santa Claus and his amazing superpowers? I can't dependably sing on key, so I'll just repeat the lyric. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Who knew that this superpower would become reality in wristband fitness trackers and smartwatches that you can wear every day? Of course, there's been an unexpected twist. All manner of crimes have been solved thanks to these gadgets. One man asserted his wife had just been killed by home intruders. Unfortunately, her Fitbit showed she had died an hour earlier. And then there's the San Jose man, who claimed he'd left his stepdaughter's home well before she was discovered slain. While he accurately told the police when he arrived, he fudged a bit about when he left. Surveillance cameras kept him there another 10 minutes. And her Fitbit? Well, during that extended period, her Fitbit marked a sharp rise in heart rate, and then a slowing, until minutes later no heartbeat registered at all. Five minutes after that, he walked out her front door. One technology is tough to argue with. Two technologies, well, good luck with that. This made me think about a simple fact of technology. Over time, desirable technologies often merge together. If a person wears both a fitness tracker and a smartwatch, or a very high-end smartwatch by itself... You get the integrated benefit of the state of your physical body and your geographic location, which in turn leads me in still another direction. These crime stories all required the person to remember to strap on their gadgets. And what else does smarter, faster, cheaper often produce? You know it. Smaller, then tiny, then minuscule. So let's project forward. Let's say we embedded a combined fitness tracker and GPS in our bodies, or as I like to think about it, in my body. While I'm not all that thrilled about the idea of anyone or anything tracking me around, there are upsides. Having a health event, such as a heart attack or a stroke or you name it, knowing that it is happening and exactly where you are in the world can mean the difference between life and death and you don't need to remember to strap it on. 
It seems everyone I know travels far and wide. Sometimes they're in remote and unfamiliar places, and sometimes alone in hotel rooms in cities with the best medical facilities. And then there are those who live alone, happily, but alone. Anyone can experience an unexpected event at any age, and when you're alone, who would know? While the technologies to monitor health status are coming fast and furious, many of them require you to strap them on. And that's when we come face to face with human frailty. In a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 2,300 heart patients were studied and two-thirds were fitted with a vest to be worn underneath clothing. It contained a heart defibrillator ready to shock their hearts back into regular beating. Over the three-month study period, average use went from 18 hours a day to 12 hours a day. At the end, half of the patients were no longer using the vest. It's not surprising, is it? We humans aren't very good at doing anything every day, all the time. So we may be moving from the idea that freedom means freedom from technology to freedom means trusted, embedded technology 24-7. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Mariano Matsukato from University College London, where she directs the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. She has some suggestions about how we might revalue our work today and in the future. Then on Tech Nation Health, Tim Shannon from Canaan Partners explains the new drug potential of protein degradation, and Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft describes recent FDA approvals in the area of AI. Professor Mariana Matsukato's new book, The Value of Everything, reminded me that I often ask people, from students to academics to business people, what's the value exchange here? And right away, they think I'm asking exclusively about money. What I argue in my book is precisely that, (laughs) which is we unfortunately have confused value with prices. And first of all, this is recent. This hasn't always been the case in economics. Uh, Classical economists actually focused first on value, and they tied it to objective conditions of production. Just think back to Adam Smith. He focused on the division of labor. Um, The pin factory example that he had where, you know, when you just have one person making every bit of the pin, it takes this amount of time when you have lots of different people who are specialized, who are producing that object um, with the increased division of labor that increases productivity, which is a key driver of growth, which is a key driver of the wealth of nations. And also Karl Marx focused a lot on mechanization, transformation of production, innovation, which he thought was a key attribute of capitalism versus feudalism. And both of these kind of 
foci on objective conditions then turned into their understanding of how exchange occurred. So first they had a theory of value, and that transformed into a theory of price. What we have today is we focus on prices, we focus on exchange, and think that somehow that reveals value. And so you have this absurd situation where someone like Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, one year after the crisis, 2009, after Lehman went bust, he had the nerve to say with a straight face, Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. And you could say that because it's true. How we actually measure value based on prices, if they are the ones who are paid the most, <laughs> that's the price of their labor, that must actually reveal their value. I'm fascinated by the fact that you say this is recent, that price determines value is a recent concept. So I focus on the way that economists have thought about this. So I don't go into value in terms of the ethics and the morality behind that. That's really right. the subject for philosophers, and I'm very interested in that, but that's definitely not my area. I focus on the way that economists themselves have thought about value, and that has absolutely changed over the last 400 years. <laughs> and uh, we shouldn't forget that economists have huge power, unfortunately, over how policymakers think. So Keynes once said, John Maynard Keynes, that practitioners on the ground who think they're just doing things useful are actually slaves of defunct economic theory. So I try to unveil the defunct economic theory, which is informing practical you know, policies on the ground, which then influence inequality, innovation, how we think about the green economy. And so when I say recent, I basically mean over the last hundred years, where we had this complete transformation from an objective theory to a subjective theory. So even workers' wages today understood as results of their preferences for leisure versus work. Firms, companies are assumed to be maximizing their profits. This is an individual sort of choice that's being made. Consumers are maximizing their utility, another word for happiness. And workers, again, laborers are supposedly maximizing their decisions about how much to sit on the sofa and how much to go to work. So this individualization of value is really, it's used to try to understand decision making. And it's assumed that prices in the economic system are in fact revealing that. So for example, when we calculate GDP, which is gross domestic product, which is the measure for a nation's output and used to measure the wealth of nations, we only actually include those goods and services that we pay for. So if there are other goods and services, for example, care work in the house, which are really important and valuable, but they're simply not being paid for, they won't go into GDP. Or you even have the absurd situation that if there was a service, for example, cleaning, if you're paying someone to clean your house every week, that would go into GDP. And if that same person is then cleaning your house, perhaps because it's a spouse or a sister or a friend, then that service doesn't go into GDP. GDP um, goes down. GDP actually goes down, exactly. And the activity hasn't changed. Exactly. Or even worse, if we, or just as bad, if we pollute, GDP actually goes up <laughs> because you have to actually pay for uh, cleaning up the pollution, but it didn't actually go down due to that negative you know, consequence. Anyway, so GDP has all sorts of issues there, which basically come out of the fact that we're only including those goods and services that have a price because how we measure value is simply 
by the fact that it has a price. And this is why you know, a very curious fact occurred in the 1970s, which is that finance was actually not being included in GDP because it really was just seen as finance a Finance as an industry. The whole financial sector. Banks, only, all of banks, that. Banks, the, the... Stock market. Exactly. That part, exactly, was not included. Other things were within the financial sector. So if there was a price for a service, for example, that a mortgage provider was giving you, they were helping you get a mortgage, they charged you X amount, GDP would go up by that X amount. It was a very concrete financial intermediation service with a fee. However, they started realizing the people looking at the national accounts, uh, they were actually in the UN, it was called the SNA group, Standardization of National Accounts. They said, oh my God, there's this whole area of finance, which is basically banking, which is rising in terms of its proportion of the economy. And what's being earned are these things called net interest payments. So the difference between what banks earn in interest uh, when they give you a loan and the difference with what they're actually paying you in interest for your deposits, that difference is called net interest payments, that wasn't being included because that up until the 1970s was seen as basically just a movement of existing assets, just like you wouldn't include social security payments into GDP. That's just a movement of existing money from one side to another. And so then they said, oh, God, yeah, but it's actually increasing by a huge amount, this thing called finance and the banking uh, sector, so we better include it. And so they took the net interest payment amount and divided it up in terms of giving it a name because we have to give these services a name. So they go into GDP through something called national income and product accounting. So they called the bit that was going to commercial banks financial intermediation right, because they were helping to move money around and that was seen as a service. And investment banks say Goldman Sachs as risk-taking. Now, what's right, quite curious about that is that we then know what happened, which is these massive risks, <laughs> risk-taking that these investment banks were doing actually lead to things like financial crises. And who actually really bears that risk? The taxpayer who has to bail All them out. All of us. <laughs> All of us, exactly. But it was quite interesting how they actually had this dilemma, again, from this absurd situation where we have to actually put in a price. And we don't then ask ourselves, is that activity really creating value or not? So, of course, care work is. Care in the home, caring for our children, caring for the elderly is. But it doesn't have a price, so we don't include it. And then we have the financial sector, which is earning all this money, but we sort of forgot to give it a name. And we do the opposite reasoning. We just give it a, a name without even making this, the value judgment. Is it actually helping to increase growth? Is it helping to nurture what a famous economist called Hyman Minsky called the capital development of the economy? In other words, really providing the long-term finance that one requires, for example, to build infrastructure, to fund innovation, which takes a very long time, or is it just moving assets around really quickly? And in fact, what ended up happening was that the financial sector kept growing basically because it was financing itself. And by that, I mean other parts of finance. We call this FIRE. So finance, insurance, and real estate. FIRE. So finance was financing FIRE, <laughs> which is actually makes you think of a, a fire, which ends up you know, as a crisis. It, it was kind as, of uh, predictable. <laughs> yes. But also what we ended up with was a real economy. And by that, I mean industry. Think of energy companies, uh, computer companies, pharmaceutical companies who themselves became financialized. And what I mean by that is using profits that were being earned not to be reinvested in the economy, for example, in new machinery, new production structures, research and development, skills of the labor force, so human capital formation, we call that, training programs for workers, 
but for areas like share buybacks. So using your profits to buy back your own shares in the stock market, which has the effect of increasing your share price because that's how we're valuing them by the price, by their share price, which has the effect of increasing stock options. Surprise, surprise, executive pay. Most top executives are paid nowadays mainly through stock options. So this whole 1%, 99% issue that has been raised over the last years was very much fueled, in fact, by this financialization, this obsession about share prices, where companies, instead of investing in the long run, these difficult things like uh, increasing your, your equipment, your machinery, but again, skills in the workforce, were just focused on these short-term measures. Let's go through that example again, just in case people missed it. It's like, okay, you have a firm. It is publicly traded. So let's just say for just the sake of argument, 100% of the firm, you can buy a share in it on on the stock market. And suddenly they get a big slug of cash. They could have sold a portion of the company, any number of reasons. Big cash comes in. So they go, oh, let's be clever. Let's take that money and buy back 25% of our of the shares that are out there in our company. The company then says, I don't have that cash anymore, but my name is on owning that share. And then the 75% of the shares out there, they become more valuable. Yeah. By buying back your own shares, you're increasing the demand for this thing called the shares as with any product, as it's demanded more, the price would go up, right, due to basic supply and demand. But what's interesting is that that activity is unjustified with basically this ideological uh, story, because these are just stories, it's not science, <laughs> which is that Lots of economics are man-made. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that maximizing shareholder value is the good thing to do for the company. And what's quite interesting, what I tried to debunk in the book, is that the underlying value proposition of this notion of how we govern companies by maximizing shareholder value is actually based on fallacies. Because, you know, I'm not the first one to argue that this leads to short-termism, that it leads to speculation, that it's bad for the economy. The problem is that nothing's really changed. It's, it's not enough to say, oh, that's bad. That means the company isn't investing in you know, the good stuff, which is say, machinery, innovation, human capital, skills, training. You have to say why the reasoning itself is wrong. And so what I try to do is show how the reasoning behind maximizing shareholder value actually comes from a false understanding of where value comes from. I don't want to make this too complex, but if you go back to the textbooks which advocated for that practice back in the 1980s, especially by someone called Michael Jensen, who was at Harvard Business School, he argued that the shareholders in a company are the biggest risk takers. So everyone else, whether it's the banks or the workers who are you know, contributing to the production process, have some sort of guaranteed rate of return. So workers have a salary. They're not taking risks. They've signed a contract to work in a place. They're going to get X amount of money per year, right? Go to work, work, go home, watch TV, go shopping, do their thing. And so this idea that only the shareholder is a really big risk taker because they don't have a guaranteed rate of return, led also to this concept that they were the residual claimants. Once everyone else has been paid, if there's anything left over, the residual, meaning the extra thing left over at the end, they have the right to claim it. They should get it. They should get it. So then you just have to pause and say, okay, sorry, what was that story there? You know, the government, for example, has a guaranteed rate of return? Of course not. Just think of everything in your iPhone or your smartphone, whatever the brand may be, was actually funded by the government, right? So what makes it smart and not stupid? The internet was funded by DARPA and the Department of Defense. 
the uh, GPS was funded by the Navy, <laughs> uh, Siri, the voice-activated system, the touchscreen display. These were all government finance. And for each of those successes, there was actually many failures. Or think of Solyndra was a, was a failure. but there, Solyndra. Solyndra was a solar company that, yes. that the Obama government actually invested in, gave it a $500 million guaranteed loan, and it failed. Uh, just like other you know, uh, investments it's made have actually succeeded, Tesla was actually also government financed initially with an equivalent size loan, just under $500 million. And so the government itself, for every Tesla, probably will have to bear with two or three cylinders. For every internet, might have to bear with two or three Concorde planes, which today are seen as failures because they're not flying. Um, and so, of course, the government has no guaranteed rate of return. It's also a risk taker. Workers are also risk takers. They might accept a job thinking that they'll have a lifetime career and maybe accept to have a lower salary than they, they would like because they think they will rise up through the ranks. There's no guarantee for that, right? So you actually have different types of risk takers, different types of value creators in these companies. And unless we have a real firm understanding of how value is created collectively by different stakeholders, then we end up with these problematic ideas about shareholders being the only risk takers, the only value creators. And what you get is the justification for the profits and the revenues of these companies to basically be siphoned off to a narrow group of actors who have been part of the process, but not the only ones. And that breeds inequality. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Mariano Mazzucato. Dr. Mazzucato is a professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London, where she directs the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. She's here today with her book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. You talk a lot about the difference between value creation and value extraction. Let's put that, we've been touching on it, but let's put some simple words to those so that when people see something, they can see the difference. So first I would take away any normative judgment, you know, on whether what we're talking about is good or bad. You know, you could even be talking about fracking, which some people think (laughs) is bad. So forget whether we like what's being financed. But value creation is basically the use of time and effort, energy, to create basically new and or improved goods and services, which would include public services, new types of health care, new, you know, better education. Value extraction is moving around existing assets, existing goods and services, and basically charging money for it, like a troll under a bridge. Just across the bridge, they get a fee. (laughs) What has the troll done? Nothing. (laughs) Adam Smith called this theft. He said that the landlords of the time who were really seen as the the key kind of uh, value extractors were thieves. Um, Now, that would be a bit of a static definition, though, right? As though you really just have one actor who's creating value and one is extracting value. The next step is really to say whether the proportion of rewards that are being earned, whether it's by the tech companies, the large banks, hedge funds, is proportional to what they've actually done. So it's not to say that, say, the banks aren't doing anything. They might have a very important role in the value creation process, for example, financing, being, you know, uh, enabling certain companies to receive the kind of finance they might need to take off in the market. But is the return being earned by, say, the investment banks or those who are creating the hedge funds or the venture capitalists themselves, as we're speaking in San Francisco today, are getting a reward that is disproportionate to what they've actually done. 
And if you don't have a deep understanding of the different collective actors who've contributed to wealth, there is a really strong possibility that we then allow this narrow group of actors to disproportionately earn and get these massive cash piles, as, for example, we definitely see in the tech community, compared to what they've actually done. So in other words, what we have is a problem with the storytelling behind the success of many of these companies. We tell only one part of the story. We even you know, mythologize the role of entrepreneurs, whether it's Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. And if we're not telling the full story, and if economic theory isn't able to tell the full story, of all the different actors, including the public actors, including the labor force, which actually contributed to the success of these very wealthy companies, then we're going to have a huge problem in making sure that the wealth that's created is shared just as much as the value was created, required different types of actors taking risks. Now, uh, you do talk about uh, Silicon Valley, you talk about Wall Street, and you talk about big pharma, pharmaceuticals. We know that the drug manufacturing portion obeys the laws of technology. It gets better, faster, cheaper. Recognizing this, you're proposing a new economic model so that we can develop pharmaceuticals and we can not only move the value around to creators and the people who are actually making all this, but we can also deliver the pharmaceuticals to the people who need them at an appropriate cost. let's, Let's talk about that model. Sure. We actually have a report that's coming out in a couple of weeks uh, funded by the Open Society Foundation, which actually proposes exactly how to do that. We call it a mission-oriented health innovation model. What is the challenge, actually? Why do we have all this government money going into a process without actually adequately and strategically thinking about what is it that we're actually financing? What kind of healthcare system you could consider from a public actor's point of view, which is not trying to maximize profits, but trying to maximize public and social value, that you would have to have a strong idea of what are the characteristics of the health system that you want to be guiding these different types of public and private investments, right? So that is often missing, and I would call that the sort of directional push. What is the mission? What are we really trying to do here? What are we really trying to do here? And you can then bring in the private sector, which of course will experiment and explore with you, but perhaps it might be better to do it through, say, a prize system that you could say, look, we really need to find solution to these kinds of diseases. Here's a prize, (laughs) this amount of money for those companies that actually come up with a solution versus putting in all the money and then allowing the price system itself the prices of the drugs to be the way that we incentivize the pharmaceutical companies to enter that space. Because then what you get is what we saw where the CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Nostrum Pharmaceuticals increased the price of an antibiotic by 400%. And antibiotics are essential medicines. When he was asked, how can you do this? How can you increase the price of such an essential drug that people require to live by 400%? He said, I had a moral imperative to do that in order to please my shareholders. And so the question is, you know, if we are going to allow a pharmaceutical industry to do that, then there shouldn't be any public funds going into it. If you want to allow the private pharmaceutical industry to be producing these drugs and to be setting any price they want, literally what the market will bear, then why are we putting public money into it? If you are going to be putting public money into it, and in the U.S. we spend over $30 billion 
$1,000 a year by the National Institutes of Health on pharmaceutical and biotech research, then of course, both the characteristics of how that health system, if you want, is being shaped, but also, of course, the prices of the drugs should reflect that public contribution. So, you know, the taxpayer is paying two or three different times. They're paying for the research, they're paying for these very high prices, and they're also paying for different types of welfare state institutions to come in and subsidize those uh, drugs for the private pharmaceutical companies, you know, Medicare, Medicaid here, or in the UK where I live, the National Health Service. It's just a very inefficient system. And it hurts both the rate of innovation, because there's lots of uh, waste, but also the direction of innovation. Innovation has not just a rate, but a direction. Dr. Mariano Matsukato is a professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London, where she directs the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Tim Shannon from Canaan Partners explains some new interests in the cutting edge of medical technology. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft describes recent approvals in AI from the FDA. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Mariana Matsukato. Dr. Matsukato is a professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London. She's here today with her book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. We actually have in the health area a system where you have huge amounts of money going in, by public funds, the National Institutes of Health, and then the prices downstream aren't being set competitively by literally, you know, through this mechanism of saying we have the moral imperative to just put the price as high as possible to actually please our shareholders. So it'd be quite curious to ask what would it look like to have a health system which is interacting 
with an innovation system in a much more targeted, strategic way, still, of course, enabling all the bottom-up experimentation and exploration, which we know is critical to innovation. There shouldn't be a top-down, two-directed Soviet-style system, but a system that is really driven by public needs and public purpose. These are essential medicines. These are medicines that are actually required by people so they can live. Um, and, and the problem is, so what I tackle in the book is the underlying value propositions that we have allowed to take hold are ones that actually make it much harder also for the public actors in this particular case that we're discussing to understand how to set up the system in a more strategic way, which really does take into consideration the collective process through which value is created. And this does come down to the fact that, you know, the way that economists have been thinking about value, which is so driven by price relationships, hasn't then allowed the government itself, whose services, you know, whether it's high quality education, high quality health, to be priced. And so it's also impossible when we calculate GDP, which we were talking about before, which is the way we calculate national output, even to show government as being productive when Goldman Sachs, you know, the head of Goldman Sachs says Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive, that's because he actually has an output measure and a cost measure. With government, we just have the cost measure. So we only include in GDP the cost of teachers, the salaries of teachers, and not the value of the output, which is a great education system. And it becomes quite interesting how if you can't show yourself to be productive, literally the accounting measures don't allow you to, how that also affects morale. You know, you get an overly confident, overly arrogant financial system, which can also show itself to be so valuable because it's being paid so much. And increasingly, I would argue, depressed civil service, which is both impossible to show its productivity, but also is not increasingly, you know, uh, uh, in the storytelling that we were talking about before, uh, to argue to be, you know, at best a fixer of market failures, at best an enabler, at worst an impediment to growth. In the Silicon Valley uh, area that you're talking about, you have other points as well. And one is, you know, we're going going beyond computers and electronics. Uh, you see a real concern with the privatization of data and its monetization. Let's go there. Sure. Um, so actually just read an article for MIT Tech Review called Turning Private Data into a Public Good. So if you ask yourself, first of all, how do we even get this big data? Where does it come from? Well, through different types of technologies, which allow us to retrieve it. So these are, again, all publicly financed technologies. You couldn't get most of this data without the internet or, say, with GP- without GPS. Then whose data is it? It is of citizens, right? So you have the citizens on both sides, both financing the data, uh, a retrieval, and also then potentially letting go of their personal data. Um, and could we actually restructure that system? So instead of having the current situation where we then worry about what happens, whether it's to privacy um, issues or you know how much to tax these particular types of data companies, could we have the opposite situation where the data from the beginning actually get stored and housed into some sort of, let's just call it for now, a public repository, which could be governed by you know, an expert advisory council, just like we have with other things that we know are incredibly important, whether it's human rights. Think of organizations like the United Nations, which we've set up, which were not exactly easy to set up. Could we actually govern these public repositories in such ways that then the conditions 
And the fees to access that data really took into consideration different types of public value concerns. Now, I don't have, I can't design that system. That's not my expertise. But it's, it surely, to me, seems like also an area that could be open for social innovation. <laughs> this is not technological innovation, a social innovation, which would be a social institution, a new form of institution that could govern that process. Um, currently, what we have is the policymakers constantly out of breath trying to catch up to the system, worrying about how to tax the companies, worrying about antitrust policy, worried about privacy policy. In Europe, we have the GDPR. And all these issues are important. They're kind of the obvious things one must think about. But you can't always be catching up because that then perpetuates the myth that somehow these uh, you know, big data companies and tech companies, again, have created all this great value. And then we just have to regulate that process afterwards. And the GDPR, which is about digital property rights, it has to do with your property. That's somebody else's. And I happened to be in Europe at the time that on one Friday, suddenly it kicked in. And I, I couldn't get a whole lot of websites. I was asked all these questions. I was I couldn't pay some of my bills. I was you know, and of course, I was in Europe trying to pay bills in the United States, but it was suddenly very concerned about what your rights would. And it was a totally different realization at an, at, a, at an individual level. It's actually empowering. It was described in the U.S. as, oh, Europe, as usual, backwards, big state, you know, meddling in people's kind of freedom. And you, when I went on Twitter that day, I was asked before I could go on Twitter, whether I agreed with the way that Twitter was going to access my data, I actually had to untick lots of boxes I had never known I had ticked because, in fact, I didn't. They had just de facto ticked them for me. You, you, and, opt, you opted in just because you were And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And also, I don't know how much junk mail you get, but you could no longer receive, you know, you could no longer be on the email list of sources that you had never agreed. And so... Uh, we ourselves in the university can no longer send out our MailChimp emails inviting people to different events or to let them know how great we were without first getting their approval. Why not? Life sort of settled down. It's pretty pretty interesting. Uh, Mariana, there's a lot in your book, and, and uh, I do hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to. Thank you very much. My guest today is Mariana Matsukato. The book is The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. It's published by Public Affairs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, Tim Shannon from Canaan Partners explains some relatively new terms and treatments protein degradation and synthetic lethality. And chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft describes new advances in AI and healthcare. Canaan Partners' Tim Shannon started out as an MD. Then he became a biotech executive, and now he's a venture capitalist. Was all that experience really needed to evaluate new business propositions? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if it's all needed, but I think it's certainly all helpful for me in, uh, 
you know, really makes a big difference in the way I look at things and, and how I can look at things. So, you know, first and foremost, I think it's really important to understand the patient and the patient's disease and what that really looks like when you're treating a patient. And um, that's really what drove me into research and development is uh, interactions with patients and frustration of not being able to solve their problems. And I was always felt that we had limited tools, and that really drove me more to the R&D side th of things, again, to try to develop better ways to, to help treat patients' diseases. So for me, it's really been critical. Well, let's talk about that. R&D and product, RDP, if you will, you're asking from the beginning, what about the patient? And yet the science has to work. The right. science converted to technology has to work. And so how does that affect the research propositions you're, you're funding and you're looking at? Right. So I think, you know, Human biology is really complex, uh, which I think is sort of the underpinnings of your question. So it's, it's not easy. And you know, we pride ourselves in thinking how smart we are, but we really aren't so smart. But we, we have to pretend we're smart enough to ask questions and, and try to answer them. So I think we always go into this eyes wide open. Um, I think we understand patients' problems. You know, I think science over the past decades has gotten better at deconvoluting those problems. I think the biggest breakthrough there has been around understanding human biology rather than animal biology. So again, industry spent a long time in animal models of, of disease, and we still use those. But what really I think has transformed our abilities are human genetics. You know, really the foundations being in the Human Genome Project, you know, which unfolded now about 20 years ago. And then the knowledge that's come from the human genes impacting disease. So that gives us real strong validation of what's wrong in a disease, a much better notion of what's wrong in a disease than we had pre-genetics. And that lets us know where to go. So it increases the likelihood of us being able to target a real important part of a patient's disease and impact their disease if we can do it successfully. So to me, that's a real big change you know, over the past 20 years in the way we approach developing drugs for uh, patients' diseases. One thing that I've noticed is what used to be like one disease suddenly becomes multiple variations on a theme, and then within that, multiple variations on a theme. The whole number of diseases you could have has expanded magnificently before us. Right, and, and, and they're all smaller because of that. So one disease has become thousands of diseases. And, the, you know, the prime example is cancer. We talk about cancer. That's one word. It's um, five or six letters, six letters, I guess. But, boy, it's a lot of different things. So, again, I think part of our limitations are when we, th we simplify things, and we simplify things like cancer, and we've done that historically because we didn't have really a strong underlying understanding of, of the complexities of diseases. And, again, we really have scientifically broken diseases down into much smaller entities, but much more specific entities where, again, you know, this is the whole idea behind precision medicine, if you can really understand a particular type of cancer in a particular patient, you can treat that cancer very well. It may not help all cancer patients, but that subpopulation of patients, you can really target and really have a big impact. And that's really been, again, a big change you know, over the past uh, 20 or 30 years. And that will continue. Um, you know, this whole trend toward you know, personalized medicine, personalized therapies will be you know, really strong going forward. Well, since I have you in front of me, I want to ask you a couple, of about a couple of terms I've been hearing, a couple of concepts I've been hearing. One focus has been on protein degradation. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. So that's a whole new type of drug. 
Um, so just to take a step back, most of the drugs that have been developed are things we call inhibitors of proteins. So they're drugs that many proteins uh, bind a thing called a ligand, and they change that ligand to something else. That's what an enzyme does. It takes one thing and changes it into something else. So most of our drugs that have been developed so far are things that block the activity of that enzyme, and they usually do it by mimicking the substrate it usually converts, so they gum up the engine of that. We've got very good at that, but the problem is there are only so many enzymes to drug. They're a very small portion of all the disease targets. Protein degradation is a different approach. So you, all you need with protein degradation, you don't need to block up a function. You, you just need to tag a, a protein, and you trick the cell into chewing up that protein and getting rid of it. So again, the cells have a normal mechanism to uh, quality control proteins within it. And it, that mechanism. You want to point to the protein. You want to get rid of. Right. So the cell usually does that. It has its own QA system, if you will. It's called the proteasome. And protein degradation tricks a cell into thinking it should get rid of something that it otherwise wouldn't get rid of. So now, if you have something causing cancer, you can use a drug to trick that cell into degrading that thing that's causing cancer. So you can go after a whole different class of protein targets in, in things like cancer and other diseases and get rid of them and deal them with them in ways that traditional drugs haven't been able to do. So it opens a whole new field and a whole, you can go after a whole different set of intercellular targets with that. And we might in the past have gone over the whole cell because we knew the protein was there. Destroy right, the right. cell, destroy would, the right, protein. Right. You don't have to do that. Right. So this, this is a way to very specifically go after a particular protein that's causing a patient's disease and just trick the cell into getting rid of it through its own mechanisms of, of, of chewing up proteins. So now for your next term, you're doing very well at this. We have nothing to give you. There's no giveaway <laughs> here. We're sorry. Okay. We probably have a nice tote bag My like expect- at KQED, but that's, that's all we can do. What is synthetic lethality? Very interesting concept. So again, this this gets back into taking advantage of the Achilles heels of cancer cells. So I think, as you know, cancer cells come about through mutations, and they develop lots of them. So those are changes in DNA that result in changes in proteins. And some of those proteins become hyperactive and drive cancer cells, but a lot of the mutations don't have any function. They just create proteins that are non-functional. Those non-functional um, proteins can cause a stress on the cell. And again, the cell has to get rid of those. They can also cause a stress on the DNA. So for your cancer cells to divide, your DNA has to be intact. And when these mutations occur in DNA, that causes stress. The cells, again, have a normal system that repairs DNA. That has in your normal cells. Your cancer cells rely on that because they have so many abnormalities of DNA. If they don't have this repair mechanism intact, they'll in fact die. So synthetic lethality is a situation where a patient has a certain mutation set, and you take a drug and you literally block DNA repair in in that cell so that it can no longer deal with the mutational load in those cancer cells, and the cancer cells will die because it pushes them over into a stressful situation. So it's actually taking advantage of mutations in a cancer cell to tip a cancer cell over into a death pathway because it can't deal with its mutations. So you want to mutate? We'll help you. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's playing right into what the cancer cell does, but it overloads it, and it can't deal with the... It, again, it, cancer cells ride a very fine line, and this just tips them over where they actually can't survive. 
because there's too much mutational load. Now, the last one I want to ask you about, I don't have a term for, but it's a, it's a new... Uh, it's something new in cystic fibrosis. Remind us what cystic fibrosis is, and right. I think you know what I'm talking about. Right. Okay. <laughs> so again, cystic fibrosis is a disease, um, you know, that starts at birth, and um, it's a disease of the lungs predominantly. It also affects some other organs, but the lungs are really what get people into trouble. So it's a disease in something called a, a, a protein in a cell that transports chloride into your airway. So your airways, air is going in and out of your breathing tubes, and those breathing tubes are lined with mucus and things called cilia, which are little hairs. And the mucus catches things that are going into your lung, and the cilia helps push them back out of your lungs. So if bacteria go into your lungs, they get expelled. That requires the mucus to be at a very particular hydration level so it can move freely. If it's too dry, it gets rock solid. So it needs water. And cystic fibrosis is a channel blocked that um, moves chloride into the airway, and water follows chloride. So that's a way that water gets into the airway to keep it hydrated. And cystic fibrosis, that gene doesn't work for that protein, so chloride doesn't go into the airway, and water doesn't go into the airway. There's another channel in cystic fibrosis that does the same thing with sodium. So it's a sodium channel that keeps sodium in the airway, and if you keep sodium in the airway, water will stay in the airway. So salt attracts water, water, and that's what keeps the mucus hydrated. So again, we we have a company that is, so the company Vertex has worked on the CFTR and had made nice improvements in patients with CF, really groundbreaking. Um, we, this week in Europe, have a company called Spirex Biosciences, who for the first time looks like they've been successful in modulating this, this sodium receptor called the ENAC receptor in a way that improves lung function in patients in cystic, cystic fibrosis. So this was the first study in patients, and it looks like it has a positive outcome on, on their lungs in terms of restoring normal airway hydration, and again, is a way to uh, improve lung function, improve lung health. So it's it's... You know, again, it's back to these very precision medicines, uh, understanding the genetic basis of disease and targeting them. There's been great progress in cystic fibrosis. I'm a lung doctor. When I was in training back in the 80s, cystic fibrosis patients lived to about the age of 14. Today, they reached the age of about 37. Uh, which is, you know, that's so more than doubled in, in about 25 years. But again, normal life expectancy is, is 80 years, and that's where we'd like to try to get patients with cystic fibrosis. I still remember my patients, you know, just begging to hurry therapies to the market, um, just a really difficult disease. So it's really gratifying to see the improvements that have been made, and you know, hopefully this new drug will be added to existing drugs and, and really put patients on a path to longevity. Well, Tim, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you. Tim Shannon is a general partner at Canaan Partners. More information is available at Canaan. Dot com. That's C-A-N-A-A-N, Canaan.com. Today, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about new advances incorporating artificial intelligence in healthcare. Sure, artificial intelligence, machine learning. The FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, is starting to actually do approvals on software, AI-based software that can uh, lead to better, faster, cheaper diagnostics. And here in the summer of 2018, when we're speaking, there's been uh, 
three or more recent approvals, I think four in, the, in this, this summer, that relate to new ways that are FDA approved for diagnostics. We're dying to know. Tell us about the first one. Well, one is a company called AI Doc that received FDA clearance for AI detection of acute intracranial hemorrhage, hemorrhage which means bleeds in the brain. A stroke. Uh, a stroke that can happen from a, a clot or from a head injury. Um, and we know, you know, I've spent time working as a clinician in emergency rooms. Nothing more scary than when someone comes in unconscious or with the worst headache of their life. Sometimes it might just be a migraine. Maybe it's a burst aneurysm, which is life-threatening. Uh, maybe they hit their head with a baseball and they just need to relax and have some ice, or they really need a, a surg- neurosurgical consultation. And in general, when you have a high level of concern as an emergency medicine physician or seeing a patient in that setting, you often send them for a CT scan. And they will, in most hospitals and emergency rooms, have them image the brain, and you look for indications of, of a bleed. And sometimes it's super obvious, a very large bleed, a shift of the midline of the brain. Your brain obvious. moved. Your brain moved, you had a bleed, and you can see that in other cases, it's sometimes a little more subtle. And what's been interesting uh, is that this one platform, AIDOC, was granted FDA approval uh, for a sort of AI-based workflow solution that can fit in the CT scan data, provide that uh, to the clinician, the radiologist, or eventually the emergency room team to be you know faster, more accurate, and from my view, keep improving the diagnostics as you have thousands and millions of brain images, you can really learn what to pay attention to and to make a big clinical impact. Especially if it's something that a human can't quite see or can't see the characteristics of because it's so small. Or Once the computer sees a hundred of them, they're going to say, hey, you know, this is what this looks like. At least consider this. Here's the arrow on your on your screen saying, take a look at this part, you know, and that's that's what we need. Humans can't get that kind of smart, I like to say. And you can have the smartest software package uh, on your smartphone, on your radiologist's uh, desk, but unless it's part of this workflow, we've talked about this in prior episodes, it needs to be part of how the clinicians of today and the future work with this so that you know, you're not just seeing a, a bunch of zeros and ones or some shading on an X-ray or CT scan. How does that get reported back? How does that be? How do you report that back in this case in hopefully faster manner? Because particularly with the brain, time is very important. And even shaving off 10% of the time from having a patient in a CT scanner to analyzing that image, getting it through the workflow and into the hands of, let's say, the neurosurgeon or ER physician or nurse is time critical. Another example that was approved in summer of 2018, a uh, platform called ICAD, which um, is a way to assess density in uh, in breast exams, a process you know, may be familiar with mammograms or something also called tomosynthesis. And essentially, uh, you know, many women have dense breasts, which makes it um, often of higher risk for, for having breast cancers, harder to analyze those mammograms and images. And by applying AI machine learning to look at both density, and I, I would imagine eventually the ability to understand if you see a lesion, whether it has characteristics of a true tumor or just a lesion that's been there or is benign, is going to play an increasingly important role in both screening and management of breast conditions, and most importantly, breast cancers. All of this data on so many mammograms that have gone on, we have to be able to do machine learning on that. Exactly. And today, we've moved from an era where we have radiology images literally on a 
on a screen with a light board to the fact that they're now digital. And the digitization of these digital images enables a new way of, a new lens of examining the data. And so you can train these systems such that an average radiologist can be a super radiologist or radiologist who's consistently being challenged by more chest x-rays, CT scans, mammograms to evaluate can have the ones pop up that really need the human level of of, of diagnostics and synthesis, um, similar to a screening chest X-ray. Several companies and academic groups have developed systems that are already better than fully trained radiologists at understanding is that lesion a benign nodule or a lung cancer. And this is only going to, I think, exponentially improve as these new data sets are coming connected and with the lens of machine learning and AI help us do smarter crowdsourced diagnostics. So that's ICAD. So you got two. You said you had four. Two others were approved this year, uh, one called uh, Icometrics for MRI brain interpretation at a global level, and a fourth, viz.ai, for CT scans that can also pick up stroke. So we're seeing this real emergence of sometimes very young companies using these expansive tools to look at our brains, and not just for acute problems, but potentially to predict, based on imaging, who's likely to develop dementia, maybe 10 or even 20 years later, what might be forms of vasculature that in folks who have a form of aneurysm that might need to have a surgical approach or can have safe, watchful waiting. Many elements in clinical care are based on judgment. That judgment, if you're a neurosurgeon, uh, an oncologist, a primary care doctor, are based on experience. And our experiences are by its very nature limited to how many patients we may have seen, where we trained, who we trained with, what journals we've read part of the exciting power of this era of AI machine learning, particularly for diagnostics, is now we're opening up the pipe to have images from pathology to dermatology to radiology that can be collected, apply the lens of these new AI machine learning technologies to understand if that skin lesion's a melanoma or a mole, or if that ditzel in the brain is benign or likely to become a clinical problem. So we're seeing a couple of things. Number one, we're seeing that the FDA is now recognizing these and approving them for general use. That's huge. That changes the reality. This isn't future. This is reality here. And the other thing is, is that you know how you have on your machine, it has a little sticker. It says Intel Inside. You could say AI Inside. AI Inside. Count or, on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> or I always like to reframe it as IA, Intelligence Augmentation, because no clinician, nurse, healthcare system wants to think that they're going to get replaced by the AI, the robot. These are, again, tools just like a stethoscope, which now can be embedded with AI to listen to your heart murmur and, and do a better job of diagnostics than a cardiologist. These are ways to augment our diagnostics and to spread them to areas of the world where there might not be a specialist or a radiologist. Uh, and so we need to see both the regulatory bodies, the FDA or EMA or many, many bodies around the world have different angles on this too live into this new realm. We have to understand how we pay for these. How do we integrate them into the workflow? Lots of challenges, but lots of opportunity, particularly not to get more expensive, but to bring health diagnostics down a level, pick up disease earlier and bring a better, faster, cheaper form of healthcare around the world. Thanks for coming in, Daniel. Thank you, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2018 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com.
www.tech-nation.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.